Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Whatever happened to the Wizard of the West? Do orcs have a teeth thing? And is this the beginning of a redemption arc? And what's the deal with Pracy? <laughs> Please, do keep digging your own grave. I look forward to your splendidly inevitable demise. Dread Emperor Benevolent the First. This is one of those chapters where so much happens, and by the end of it, the plot is unrecognizable from where we were at the start. I'm just kidding. There's just talking. It's important and great, but we don't really get anywhere. We don't. We learn a little bit about the world. We learn a little bit about a few characters, and we set up for a big event next chapter. This chapter starts with a sort of war college ceremony wherein the losers of the war game submit to the winners at and her victorious soldiers and officers go hang out a little bit party cats promoted she's stolen away from the party by her rival captain who apparently is this chapter's exposition character since black's not around which is pretty nice because we learn a few things and then black invites cats to court like you said, we kind of just set things up, learn a little bit, but uh, we don't move anywhere. I think this entire chapter takes place within a couple of hours. It's just conversations. So at the beginning of this chapter, we see the glorification of Rat Company, the humiliation of First Company, and in this heavily ritualized procedure, Ratface and Catherine advance together to the site of accepting the not really surrender, but just uh, acknowledgement from First Company. And I'm deeply amused at this, simply because Ratface and Catherine are walking towards Juniper, formally, ceremonially, the victors. Catherine's known Ratface for all of 10 minutes of interaction. I think it's fantastically absurd. I, I agree. I think having Nock tell Ratface that this was Cat's victory, which certainly he did, 
makes gives Cat a little bit of a nudge towards being important here. And I think at this point, Ratface already knows that Cat's getting promoted. But yeah, it is funny that we've got the two captains and also one of the lieutenants just sort of heading up together. Cat's special. Protagonist privileges. She is a protagonist. We'll talk more about that later. But Ratface knows exactly what he is and what his abilities are. He gets to the top, or he gets to the point. He gets to the meeting place, and he clasps arms with Juniper and fully acknowledges his limitations in comparison. Hellhound, he greeted Juniper as he clasped her arm. Not how we expected this one to go, huh? And I love him. Even if he weren't the hottest guy around, as we'll discuss later, he's the loveliest guy. Just fully aware of his limitations. Hey, enemy leader. Surprised to see that we're still alive, more or less. Me too. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, this is this is the kind of line that one could deliver after pulling a, a, a upset that you had planned for. You know, the kind of thing that Hellhound might be able to say after one of her amazing strategies. Nope, this is Ratface saying, well, shucks, I guess I won. And good for him. Well, we get to see, uh, and good for him. Ratface and Juniper aren't the only important characters around, though, or at least not in consideration. Hellhound is a little worried about living down the fact that she lost to Rat Company, and she references a specific person. Offhandedly, she says the name Morak as somebody that she'll need to uh, somebody whose nose she'll need to break if he gloats. Uh, I'm not wrong. We don't know this name yet, or at all. Am I right? I don't know this name yet. No, he doesn't show up until the second set of games. Okay. I, it was a name that showed up, and I was trying to recall if I knew it from anywhere. Does he end up being important at all? He has a chapter named after him. Morak's Plan? Oh. At least I think so. That's from my memory. Let me actually check. That does sound right now that you say that. Good for him. Good for Morak. Well, you know what they say about Morak. It's always good for him. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, chapter 23. Hmm, interesting. After Hellhounds talks about needing to break somebody's nose, we get our first introduction to the one sin, one grace mantra, I suppose. The philosophy that um, Black instilled into the legions. She after After losing... She pulls out her sword, Hellhound does, and calls out one sin. Her soldiers return defeat. Ratface takes out his sword, turns to face his soldiers. One grace, he yelled. Victory! And first of all, absolutely metal. This one sin, one grace thing. The idea that all that matters to the, the legions is the practicality of did you win or lose? Great. All good stuff. We'll probably talk about it a lot more. It's discussed a couple of times. Very, very Amadeus. But I do want to say it is absolutely brutal that you lose a game at college and your commanding officer says, hey, just a reminder, there's exactly one sin that exists and it's what we just did and you all have to yell about it in front of the people that beat you. And killed some of your friends. And who, Yeah, you killed some of the friends, of course, with crossbow bolts and whatnot. That is... It's like hazing just to, in a, a group of 200 people, have to shout, yep, I did the only thing that's a sin. And they have to, th you know, the thundering it back. It's, it's part of their war cry. It's a big deal to them. But in this moment, it's an admission. It's a confession. And uh, it's, a, it's a rough one. It's important that they realize that 
what they did is wrong and bad, and they are wrong and bad. Because how else will you have a cohesive and powerful military corps? True. And that is a good point. Really, really going in with the uh, great man theory here. We've got our great orc, I guess. All, everybody who lost has sinned. But really, we know that Cap beat Hellhound, and that's all that actually matters. One of the only two things that matters. Well, Ratface takes Juniper's sword, ritualistically accepting her defeat, I believe, accepting her acknowledgement of its defeat, and then he hands it back to her that she might fight again or something. Or does he? Instead, he hands it to Catherine, which we will talk about later. She's becoming the captain now, but not the whole captain. That's what... uh, but as he does so, I want to just note Catherine's acknowledgement. Uh, Juniper handed her blade to Ratface, handle first. The handsome boy took it, but after a heartbeat, handed it to me. Catherine fixates on very few people's looks as much as she is doing now with Ratface. She fixates on looks. No, I take that back. She does not fixate on looks with anyone. She gets first impressions on looks, and she lusts over them. But she doesn't objectify people. She acknowledges that people are also objects to be enjoyed or spent like pennies on near-futile war efforts. But outside of Ubwa, Militia, and frankly, maybe that's it. Not even the Kingfisher Prince's hips. Ratface is getting a lot of praise. I mean, he's a cutie. What, more, what, what do you want from her? I don't think she even sleeps with him. I think you're right, but it is Cat, and I, it is a little hard to keep track, frankly. She's prolific, as they say. That said, I think part of it is the is honestly just the juxtaposition. His name is Ratface, and he's cute. It's, you know, that's weird. When you have the Dread Empress, sure, you expect her to be, uh, I believe, something along the lines of a bonfire to the average person's candle in the looks department. You've got Eris bred Tracy Noble. You've got the Kingfisher Prince. Need I say more? Ratface is just like a guy, you know? A real cutie. A real cutie. I don't know whether we'll make much of this, but even though the woe is nearly entirely absent, Archer is, I assume, in the middle of the woods. Uh, Masego is performing atrocities on pigs. Vivian's getting wrapped up in treason. And good for her. We have our first, I think, Catherine Bonfire. Her first pre or post, in this case post, battle, fireside, get together. And that's it that I have for this, but does that mean anything? Is it, does it mirror something? Is there something to be read into this? So I think it is a common, I, I think it's not unexpected for there to be a fire with good food and drink and that sort of thing. By no means. For a celebration. And or for, you know, hey, we're going into a big battle tomorrow. Let's enjoy life while we can situation. So I think this specific instance doesn't mean anything directly tied to the woes pattern of eh, patterns, the wrong word, tradition of getting together for a little fire feast and alcohol, but with an F before a battle. Uh, I think it, it connects to those only in as much as there's a cultural weight on gathering around a fire and eating and drinking to form bonds and which is important and it's good to note that it exists in Colernia. it would be weird if it didn't but it's good to note that it does and i 
this the cat values that sort of connection with the people around her i mean especially the low but everybody around her eh, that's going into battle with her and so i think seeing that here might help cement it in her mind as an important thing to do but i don't know that this is from a narrative standpoint a piece of foreshadowing or uh, a step towards that necessarily though it does serve as a good time to unwind and make peace especially considering again these two groups were literally killing each other just a few bells ago and thankfully Nobody seemed to be holding grudges over beating each other bloody and killing each other during the game, which I suppose made sense if they were held every week. How are there survivors at this point? Well, I think we counted three on-screen deaths, if I recall correctly, um, in this last battle total between the two sides. And there were 200 people involved. So if you say 1.5% casualty rate every week... You don't need to recruit that many more freshmen, I suppose, <laughs> at the end of a semester to make up the numbers. That's not that bad. So in one year, we only expect 78 dead uh, per two parties, I guess, actually. So 39 dead out of 100. 40% yearly casualty rate ain't bad. I mean, frankly, if these people are coming from... If we have soldiers here who are coming from the not-wealthy parts of Praise they probably have a better chance of surviving here than at home. That's not bad. Somebody like Juniper, whose life is very important, probably, because she's probably the best because greatness is genetic in this setting, to some degree. Well, she better be able to fend for herself, or you know what? She wasn't worth much anyway. Also, I bet an orc could tank a 30-foot fall pretty easily, honestly. I don't know what an orc can tank. I remember seeing one tank seven demons. Eight? Six? Five? Three? And It's all the same. Speaking of that orc, Hawkram did take a log falling down a hill to the chest a couple hours ago, and he seems fine. Much like many people in this series, he starts as and remains exactly who we know him to become. The best? Absolute best. But Unlike some other characters. Speaking of characters who remain who they are the entire series, what's up with Kat? She's hanging out with the soldiers. She's enjoying spending time with them, but she says that she didn't spend a lot of time at the orphanage going out drinking with the other girls, and then says, I'd tasted enough drinks at the nest that the novelty had worn off, and most of the time I had better things to do. This is Catherine Foundling, the Duchess of Moonless Nights, the warden, the squire, saying she has better things to do than drink? I don't know. I, I'm wondering if she took a fall off a ladder that just isn't mentioned or that she doesn't remember. Because that does not sound right. I actually figured this one out already. Oh, okay. So the thing about alcohol addiction, the thing about alcohol dependency, is that you don't have the illness before you have the alcohol, right? You're, sure. Nobody's an alcoholic if they don't drink, uh, except maybe... Issues of people being born addicted to stuff, but you know, ignore that. Uh, Catherine has drunk. She drinks a bit. Everyone does. It's faux medieval setting. And she will drink more and, in fact, develop an alcoholism. But the thing is, alcoholism comes after drunkennesses. And at this point, Catherine has had relatively little experience being drunk with power. But she's had a taste of victory here. And we'll see that continues. And as it does, 
she will be drunk on power. And thus, due to the inviolable laws of metaphor, the uh, transitive property of metaphor, she will thus have a need for alcohol. Quid pro ego est. Well reasoned, well argued. I concede fully. You are correct. What isn't correct, or rather I should say isn't right, is that Catherine is able to get along so well with Pracy. She hesitates to call the people she's spending time with friends yet, but does admit that they're easy to like, and then catches herself and thinks, what does it say about me that I find it easier to laugh with the Empire's freshest batch of killers than my own people? And I think what it says, Kat, is that you recognize that these foot soldiers in a different country than the one you were born in are also people. And also that you grew up in an orphanage where I just, I've never been in an orphanage, but it strikes me as the kind of place that doesn't do a whole lot to encourage strong social bonds necessarily, like something similar to an army might. And you probably didn't experience the elation of a shared victory while at an orphanage like you did just now. This is a very reasonable place to be. Let yourself enjoy it. I am frankly horrified at how quickly you encouraged Catherine to turn traitor. Well, she's following in a wonderful legacy. We find out that one of the teachers at this um, at the war college is from Lore because this teacher was a part of the 13th, which Kat knows about. It's the famous traitor legion. It's the 13th Auxilia. It's a, apparently a Halloween legion made up of former bandits and mercenaries. Kalowans who didn't like the throne for some reason or another joined up with the Precy during the conquest, or following the conquest, rather. And I gotta say, this is one of those times where I understand that the story has a focus and what's on screen is what matters in a very real way because of the way that the, the narrative works here. But I'm very curious. I feel like there has to be some some interesting stories with the 13th Legion here. So I, I'd love to hear the actual stories, the personal stories from the people who were involved in this Legion, even the officers. I'm sure there's more to it than just, these are the angry Kalowans, and thus they went to war with all the other Kalowans. I'm just, it seems like there's a big story there, and we never really get more of it. When we get them, are they the next generation, or are they the same folks? Them being the 13th? Yeah, because Vivian brings them into the Kalowan side, I believe. Gotta be the next generation, I would imagine. They're raised in the wake of the conquest, so 20 years ago. You'd be at the tail end of how, following a Roman model, just for the sake of having some model to follow here, 20 years would be at the very tail end of uh, of a tour of service, I guess, if you want to call it that, for a legionary. So you're cycling in. You, you know, you may have officers and veterans who have been there the whole time, but you're, between losses and retirees, I'm sure you're basically done. You're, you're, you're in the second generation, 20 years later. What's the name of the leader? It's a pretty normal name, right? By our cultural standards. I am unsure. Well, uh, Hamburg's my ability. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah Holt. Jeremiah. Maybe not such a normal name by our cultural standards. But not abnormal. Oh, no, 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 no. Hasn't been abnormal for, what, a couple millennia? I suppose. So they sing a song. We've got a wizard in the west, but no matter how he's blessed, we got a warlock in the tower who'll use his bones for flower. Great legionary song called the Legionary Song. They 
thing in the legions, and we see that here and there. They do sing in the legions, and Cat hears this this song and is starts thinking about this kind of thing. Apparently, it's normal for the the legions to sing, and Cat begins a thought surrounded by Pracy with the thing with Pracy, and I have to say, very strong start. She's laughed at. People roll their eyes, as you'd expect. And she continues on to have a specific, if perhaps weirdly placed, given the context, critique. So the thing with Pracy is that they have so many rituals, she says, reacting to the way that the military school had an official endgame ceremony and that they sang a military song at their military feast after their military games. Now, I am no militarian, but she's noting military traits and design that, you know, that's the thing about the Precy. The the thing about Americans, the way they always say, oorah, to one another. Yep, that that is... Classic America. How do you tell it? There's an American around when you're in Europe. Well, they're the ones saying, sir, yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That's not... (laughs) It's, it is... Interesting, and it makes me wonder how it doesn't make me wonder. It is interesting, and it I think part of that can point back to the fact that Brace has an abnormally professional military. We're in a faux medieval setting, of course, and very true. Plenty of weird details here and there, but Brace's military is a professional career filled with a professional army filled with career soldiers. They were built. This army was built recently by a person not over the course of hundreds of years with the nobles calling up levies and all these different things they they have these things that set them apart from everybody else hallow is very much medieval you know northern europe western europe i guess you've got knights and levies and the king is at the top and all of these things so they may not have the military traditions in the same way that the Precy do with at their in their rank and file. The idea of everybody having these specific things that they do to maintain discipline with songs and chants and mantras and all of these things. So it could actually be foreign for Cat, since yeah, she's used to legionaries being around, but not she wouldn't be seeing this side of things. Whereas what the military she would learn about at home. Yeah, she's in an imperial orphanage, but if you're talking Callowan history, you're going to learn Callowan military things, and the Precy are the enemy. So you're learning Callowan history from people on the street, or your friends, and they may not have this kind of tradition. When the peasants are levied into blocks of people with cheap equipment, they probably don't have fun songs they sing. They, you know, they're too busy being scared and letting the knights do all the work. Whatever happened to the knights? Uh, I'm sure they're fine. Thankfully. Her prejudicial commentary is relatively well-received. Indeed, Ratface grinned, which suited him much better than his usual sour expression. He really was a handsome one, if a little delicate-looking compared to my usual tastes. End of comment. Ratface is a cutie, and he's also pretty clever. Little little witty here, cat, you know, that's the thing with Pracy, all the rituals. And Ratface laughs, well, grins, I suppose, and responds with, that's the thing with Callowans. You always leave out the best parts of history. And I have to say, got her. But that actually brings up an interesting thing. We, I had just talked about the Imperial Orphanage and Cat's education. And 
This one seems weird to me that Cat wouldn't know it, the sin and grace thing. It seems like legionaries would be saying that a lot, and Cat was around legionaries. It seems like when Cat learned the history of the conquest, that speech, which by all accounts, all accounts that we've seen, was a pretty short one, you would think that that would be taught, if not repeatedly, at least mentioned, the one sin, one grace thing. I don't know. It's it's weird to me that Cat is this wholly unfamiliar with one sin, one grace, given how recent it was and how important it is to the entire Precy military. Actually, that may have answered my question. Maybe it's only important within the military and the educators and normal folks walking around don't know about it. That very well could be the case. Admittedly, it isn't quoted regularly out of context that we've seen. Heavily in context, but in occupied but but otherwise peacetime, you're not going to see much of that in a bustling city. No, but I can... I don't know. I can just easily envision a scenario where they're in a bar where there are legionaries and also Callowins, and some Callowin complains about, uh, you cheated, you've got the calamities, that's not fair, and a legionary shrugging and saying, one sin, one grace. It doesn't matter how we won, we won, and that's all that matters, you know? So are you saying EE is wrong? I'm saying Cat wasn't paying attention. Oh, then I agree. <laughs> Only and completely. Yeah. <laughs> Like you, I have read this. Speaking of Cat not paying attention, though, a little later on, there's Hockram is uh, quoting the Black Knight speech. We get the whole thing, uh, the one, one grace, one sin, which, just so we have it here, it's just a few lines. It's, today we set aside good and evil. There is only one sin, defeat. There is only one grace, victory. Everything else is meaningless. Not only is it about practicality, it's also setting aside what we are told narratively, what we are told by the story itself, the only decision that actually matters, good versus evil. We're told that now, Hockram is saying through, well, the Black Knight is saying through Hockram, set that aside, victory is what matters to the Legions of Terror. Powerful statement. But following that, Cat is thinking about the calamities and how big they are in praise. And then she says a line that I think is very funny. All of them, the calamities, were treated like giants among men, the epitome of all it meant to be pricey. So one of the calamities actually is a giant among men. It makes sense that she would be treated like one. And also only three of the... Oh, four, actually. I forget the scribe actually counts. Not all of the, not all of the calamities are pricey. I would argue that... Black, at least, is not particularly pricey in a lot of ways, considering how opposed to the nobility he is. Ranger is obviously kind of her own deal, and Scribe is too devoted to Black to be any nationality, frankly. But, you know, the, pra- the Calamities are still huge, nearly mythological figures, so most of the point still stands. Well, probably not too many people would be able to Catch us up on that much history. You'd have to be a real nerd to know that kind of stuff. Uh, your segues are getting better and better, I have to say. Thank you. One thing we learn a little later on is that the reason Ratface is captain is not so much his military skill, shocker, I know, but more that none of the other lieutenants wanted to be, and also that 
He's a complete nerd. He had the highest marks in the company. Loser. What? Come on. What kind of... He's in a military school and he's getting high, good grades? Come on, guy. This is, of course, after one of the big moments in this chapter where Kat is, you know, promoted to be the new captain of Rat Company. But, eh, we all saw that coming. He is the protagonist. Right. What amuses me greatly, though, is that the entire company of people at military officer school wants desperately to not be the leadership in military officer school. The school they went to for military officership. They want to avoid officership as much as possible. And it just sounds like my grad school experience, and I respect it so deeply. <laughs> well, to be fair, they are several of them are officers. They just don't want higher ranks. And then there's Hawkroom, who's bad at language. Poor guy. Gods bless. Or gods ignore them. I don't know. Gods relate as beneficially to them as possible. That's a good way of putting it. Well, of course, now Catherine is a captain. Because she is a protagonist. Because she is special. Because... And I don't mean to reveal anything secret, but she's got a name. He does, in fact. And Juniper recognizes this. She comes and finds Captain Callow and takes her on a little walk so they can have a conversation. And without much preamble, drops the, you have a name. This is true. Juniper's smart. She's good at this kind of thing. Makes sense. And Kat... Speaking of smart and good at things... Uh Uh-huh. Kat just does her best, which is not great, at deflecting this deduction. She says, and I want you to know I've got a hand on my face right now, just in secondhand embarrassment. That's quite an assumption to make, I replied anyway. For all you know, my family might have a long tradition of being great jumpers. And, cat friend, there's... This is this is the kind of thing that later Cat would say as a joke to as some kind of like feint, I guess, a, a conversational feint to throw her opponent off guard. But here it reads as though she's actually trying to deflect the attention of Juniper with this line and just does it does it poorly. <laughs> Which Juniper recognizes and is fully ready to call Cat on. She says, Don't take me for an idiot which Kat was very clearly doing. Trying to. No, 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 no. Catherine is a clever, clever woman. She considers Juniper's continued suspicion, which goes to show how smart the hellhound is, to even have the ability to suspect at this point of true and demonstrated innocence. Uh, and so Catherine decides she has to use the unbeatable gambit of saying, everything's possible. I finally said, deciding that vagueness was still the way to go. Masterful is all I can say. There's no way Juniper suspects at this point. Hey, Kat, did you bring a gun to the knife fight? Well, uh, maybe I brought a... Everything's possible. Did you bring a gun to the chapter one knife fight? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you bring a, a gun to the chapter one fight? Thank you. And Catherine, that's all. Juniper has some evidence lined up and ready to go and just kind of pours it on cat. And (laughs) we get a a moment where you can really just tell who Juniper's mom's best friend is because she's first of all says fair doesn't factor in brushing aside cats. Are you worried that this made the fight unfair? And she says an unknown stranger with an obviously fake name takes the rank in the lowest ranked company on the edge of their 12th defeat 
name bait. Uh, she's got a great education and has some family friends who are pointing her in the right direction on top of her obviously immense natural talent. You keep praising Juniper's immense natural talent, but Catherine's ability to leak information like a sieve is unparalleled. Juniper says, I should have sent two lines to bury you on the first night just in case. And Catherine says, yeah, that probably would have worked. Just play with your hand facing out. Go right ahead. That would be a fine thing to say were this graduation night. Sure, yeah. Tell somebody you'll be fighting alongside, potentially. Yeah, you might have been able to stop me. This is the beginning of her time here. She will be in battles again against Juniper. And she more or less is saying, oh yeah, you can beat me if you just throw 20 soldiers at me. Or what did she say? Two lines? 40 soldiers at me. Okay, cool, Cat. Now she knows. <laughs> if you had said, I don't know if that, had been, if that would have been enough, or even the other way to buy yourself some time, oh, you wouldn't have needed that many. I'm not, I don't have a combat name or something like that would have been great. Nope, just, yeah, that would have done it. Good call. But you have to understand, Catherine is deeply outgunned here. She has been drinking, and Juniper has been not. And with a plan that intricate, that malicious, you have to agree with Kat's assessment that Juniper is nothing less than possessed of patient ruthlessness. I mean, can you imagine that? Not drinking for an hour? Mastermind. Hmm, my opponent in the upcoming struggle is going to do something that's going to leave them vulnerable. I could initiate the struggle now or after they do that something. Only Juniper, only the Hellhound could have come up with such a brilliant strategy. She is truly the greatest military mind since Grim One-Eye. He directly tags Cat as being the squire pretty quickly. She puts this together, starts to, to think of who the new names are, a transitional name, which she comes up with as well, and just says, you're the squire. A lot of what she said makes perfect sense, knowing who she's been in contact with and how, you know, frankly smart she is. This is a this is a this one's more impressive, I think. This is the impressive poll that she was able to narrow it down to a specific person. Nicely done. Nice job, Juniper. To be fair, apparently stories are already out about there being a squire. And the official story, or at least the story that Juniper has received, which I assume is going to be pretty near official, because I get the feeling that Juniper is not going to be given too many advantages from her family because she's going through this the right way and going to make something of herself if she can and she can because she's Juniper. That's my feeling. But what Juniper knows of the official story is you're the girl who set half of Summerholm on fire just to smoke out a hero. It's interesting to me that that's the story they're going with. Just publicly, yeah, there's a hero in the works. We're saying a city on fire. We're going to take care of him. It's a decision in control of an occupied territory. That could very well just be the story that the Precy know, since if you could pitch that as the Rebels did it in Callow, you definitely would have. But it makes sense that Black is working to build up Kat's reputation. He already mentioned how she was able to leverage what she has against Eris uh, back at the Blessed Isle, so you might as well continue building on that so that she can leverage it more effectively as she grows, which she will very, very well. She's, in the story, I think maybe the best at leveraging her reputation 
out of everybody except maybe Ranger, depending on how you define the ability. It's uh, it's 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 neat to see not the start of that, but the the early stages of it. Catherine has had a lot of opportunity with her time with Black. She's learned a good fair bit. But Juniper has the advantage of having years and years and years steeped in name lore around the named or around those who are around the named. And so she is able to be our info dump. She is able to introduce us to concepts like that of a pivot, which she brings up here and which is also the title of not just this chapter, but, and this shows how far ahead EE thinks, of this episode of the podcast. Wow, that's true. I hadn't even made that connection. And we had mentioned, I suspect, last episode, that we should pay a little bit more attention to the titles and consider why they might be what they may be. And I think today's is going to be very self-explanatory. Why is this episode called Pivot, do you think? Hmm. I do see that the word shows up in the chapter. Do you think that's it? Uh, keep, keep reading after that a bit. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Are you confused by what the word means? No, that's just cat who hears oh. the word pivot and says, I really wish people would stop using words out of the blue and somehow keep expecting me to know exactly what they were talking about. Now, cat, I understand that pivot here is not being used to mean physically rotate, but like the, a little bit of context clues. It's, it's kind of right there. Uh, you're you're good at learning, but it feels like things just have to be explicitly told to you, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Either that or Juniper's clever plan to get you absolutely drunk before talking to you may have backfired a little bit. Catherine Foundling does not like to drink. Sorry, we sorry, tried it right. at the bar, and now she's done. She doesn't have a taste for it. You're right. We get one detail about orc anatomy. I need to note before we go further. Juniper frowns, which Catherine finds strange on orcs, because they have no hair on their brows, only thick ridges of skin. But that aside, why is this episode called Pivot? I think at the base level, we are learning a little bit about what a pivot is in name lore. That's important. It's this. It's a, a moment where the story not can change necessarily, but it, where its direction can be solidified. It's It's a branching point in a story. And this chapter only serves to be that for Kat in her time at the War College, I think. I don't think it's a major pivot in her personal story, except at the end of this conversation where she gets a bit of information that makes her introspect a little bit. But she becomes captain of Rat Company. Juniper refers to that as being a pivot for Rat Company. So Kat is less pivoting, and she isn't the one who's pivoting. She is pivoting something else. Rat Company is being pivoted by Cat. There's how I want to phrase that. So the the exposition, the turn in Rat Company, the awareness of what her biggest pivot so far was, all of that kind of comes together for the title, I think. And we also get uh, Hellhound talking a bit about Trace's biggest pivot in centuries. Recognize that Juniper is not, say, the Apprentice. She is not a child of calamities. And so perhaps Black isn't Uncle Amadeus to her. But I was frankly a little surprised to see how fully she has bought into the typical green skin adoration of the man. Uh, when Catherine insults the Black Knight, 
Juniper questions the choice and then insists Lord Black is the best thing to happen to the Empire in centuries, which in many ways is a pretty defensible statement, but a bit worshipful for someone not that far removed from him, I think. Uh, not in an I don't think this is well written or I don't understand type of way. No, she's clearly been allowed to maintain that opinion of him and likely her mother has a very high opinion of him. But I do find it interesting that Black's mortal failings weren't more pronounced in Juniper's life. There's also the fact that Juniper is a military woman, first and foremost. And I think one of Black's biggest pure successes, I think without caveats, is his reform of the legions. A lot of his successes, you know, some people like, some people don't, or are still in progress. But he made the legions of terror from, you know, the people that march alongside the man-eating tapirs or whatever into actually the most... Mm, that's not the right. Into actually one of the most professional armed forces in Colonia. Juniper respects that. Juniper sees that. Juniper's aware of that. She gets to work with those soldiers now. So, you know, she probably is more aware of that aspect of things than most people. But it is, yeah, it it it's that level of awe towards a family friend. Yeah, it's interesting. All I'm saying is someone who knows Black at all well would have, find it hard to respect him. I kid, he's great. Also the worst. Do not get me wrong. Monster. Vile, vile creature. For sure. When Juniper talks about Black, though, we get... It, it's a little dark here, so Kat's not sure, but she says, Are you blushing? And Juniper gets defensive instantly. It's adorable. I love it. The Hellhound. Very cute. The Hellhound, the mighty leader of First Company who's undefeated until now or whatever. She's... All these things... And she's blushing, thinking about how how cool Amadeus is. <laughs> it's it's great. I love these characters so much. Everybody's the best. Every single character. It's an amazing work, but not as amazing as Catherine's skills at deception. Oh no, because Catherine concocts because Cat because Catherine concocts a very clever ruse. She learns about pivots and then takes up what she claims to be a hypothetical. And you see, this is where the deception falls in, because it might be less than hypothetical. Catherine says, so take a boy and a girl of roughly the same age. They're on opposite sides. The boy doesn't take a golden opportunity to finish the girl when he has it. And afterwards, when she beats him, she also spares him. Not that it has any bearing on reality, right, Catherine? This is just a hypothetical. She's openly admitting to Juniper, the hellhound Istrid's daughter, her at best near treason while covering it up in a way that no one could see through. Yeah, she kind of went out of her way to make sure to cloud the details in speaking to Black to give herself at least some deniability, even though he obviously saw right through her as well. And here she's more or less just like, yep, I did the thing that I was accused of. What of it? It's, uh, listen... <laughs> Cat's early on in her career. She's young. She's still learning. I think we've got to have a little grace for her. <laughs> because otherwise, oh boy. She's not great at self-discipline, really. That's true. And we also, I think we get a, a really big reveal, speaking of uh, you know us having grace for Cat and the self-discipline. She 
she's thinking through what a pivot is and the hellhound saying that the story that Kat delivered was a redemption story. And as she, she gets through that, she realizes that her reactions were too strong in Summerhome when she saw the hanging when Kat, or sorry, when she saw the hanging when Black spoke to her, she could see that she had been influenced. She says, not by much. Most of the disgust I'd felt then, I still felt. But my rea- my reaction had been too strong. I'd been nudged just a little to the side by my... I'd been nudged just a little to the side of my usual mindset. We have spent a lot of time, and certainly will continue to spend a lot of time, talking about the balance of power, meaning control, not supernatural abilities, between the name and the named, between the role and the person who is playing that role. And this is a big piece of information for us. In the moment, Kat's reaction is huge, and it's it makes some level of sense. She's distraught, but it also I it also is a really really big reaction to seeing firsthand the consequences of her own actions that she fully was intending to have happen. She was planning on there being a civil war. She knew that meant people were going to die, and in that moment, she collapsed. Seeing that it was her name nudging her, having her come to that realization that's that's big in what a mantle is and this is when her name wasn't working properly it had turned off for a bit and it was still nudging her reactions name are a malevolent force but not half so malevolent as the manipulators and schemers like william cat gets angry in the, at this moment and makes a leap that i think is a little interesting I think it's a bit of a stretch, and I think she maybe goes in slightly the wrong direction. She says, I'm going to smother him with his own intestines. Talking about, of course, the lone swordsman. She thinks to herself... That is not how it ends. Yeah, she's... she's. It's a poor prophecy, but eh, she's still learning, like we said. She thinks, the lone swordsman had muddled my, freed, my free will. Unforgivable. Not even Mazus had tried to rob me of who I was, and he'd hanged for what he'd done. First of all, this is, I think giving too much agency to the Lone Swordsman. Kat's name had nudged her based on the story that was ongoing that involved both of them. I don't think I don't think the, <laughs> I don't think William is a schemer. He's not black. In this situation, had the same thing happened and her opponent had been the Black Knight? Yes, absolutely. That's what's going on. He had set it up so that he would be he'd spare her, she'd spare him, and that would set up the redemption arc. Sure, I'd believe that. William's a goober. He's not the kind of person who's, like, planning this. He's the kind of person who walks into a room, sweeps his great cloak to the side, draws his sword, and vows the destruction of all evil, else he will fall on his own blade or some nonsense. He's the lone swordsman. He's an anime protagonist. Plus, you you take that, and then you also add in, not even Mazes had tried to rob me of who I was, and he'd hanged for what he'd done. Those are such different circumstances the situations there are so different one is in cat's mind somebody with a name influencing the story to see cat be redeemed and the other is a governor robbing from the federal government more or less like yeah he's gonna hang for that he broke laws william is also breaking laws it's trees but is not (laughs) the thing you're mad about is not in the same realm those aren't comparable crimes because one is a crime and one is 
a moral thing at best, and also, like I said, the Lone Swordsman doesn't have the name lore strength to be coming up with plans like that. I don't know. This is just a weird comparison for Kat to be making. You fail to understand, though. The point she's making is that Mazes didn't mind control her, and William did. Come on. Really Anything else is a detail. Definitely what happened. You're right. He climbed up into her head and made her name be mean. Classic William. Kat's pretty angry about this. Just going to call it out here. We get our fourth fingers clenching. Our fourth set of fingers clenching. Adding that to the tally. Fantastic. But not as fantastic as what Kat says next. I stumbled into my tent. My good mood evaporated into thin air. The others would have to soldier on without me. This is a pun. It's I don't very, think it was even intended. It's very clever. But they have to soldier on. And they're military boys in the uh... military camp for military people, which makes them soldiers. And and Catherine said the word soldier about the soldier. Do you understand the joke? It's very clever. E.E. E. wrote it himself. But of course, E.E. E. is indeed all-knowing. Much like one of the characters in this story that we don't see mentioned in this chapter, but is definitely behind something that happens soon. We get our first example, I think, of scrying, which is basically long-distance communication. We have... We have it described as one of Warlock's more useful tricks. And that sentence has a lot going on in it, starting with, I don't think that's true as far as Warlock goes. And also a lot of other people can do scrying. But that's neither here nor there. You know a case that was right nearby and was being mocked. (laughs) Honestly, you're probably right. Black then says, I hear the war game is over. We know exactly who he heard this from. And I absolutely adore that it's been over for a couple of hours and she already knows. She's not getting messages about that. They're too far away for unless she's scrying with war game operators, the, the staff, to Mrs. Wargame. <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Wargame, thank you. It's it's amazing. I just I love Scribe. She's Terrible in her weird devotion to Black, but she's, I, I love her role in the story. Just behind the scenes, just know things that are weird to know. Great. But Black is uh, maybe not fully aware of how things happened, or at least is being a little goofy with his word choice, because he refers to what happened over the course of the last couple of days as Cat's Campaign, which is a very generous word for you had a hundred soldiers, most of whom spent most of the time as prisoners, and you ran around in the woods and knocked some people out and killed a few others before stealing a flag. I really like that. That's the kind of encouraging mentorship that, you, you know, it. he doesn't belittle her achievements. He treats it as a successful campaign that she won the war game. Well, perhaps he realizes who she's fighting against, because any opposition to Juniper cannot feel like anything less than a campaign. I suppose that's fair enough. Though I deeply enjoy that Black seems to enjoy that Catherine won simply because Istrid keeps saying that Juniper will be the next Grem One-Eye, which is very unfair to Juniper because she would never get distracted by a name the way Grem had hammering in the back of his mind even now. That call to warlordship? Nope. Juniper is a soldier. Never anything else impossible. When you're that good at something, you don't need a name slowing you down, forcing you in different directions. Juniper knows what she is, and 
you know what? She knows what she's about and she sticks by it. And I respect that. So you're saying Juniper is the other Hassenbach? I was mentally making that comparison as well, but I didn't I didn't know if it was worth bringing up yet. The fact that Catherine is surprised that Juniper never brought up in their one conversation that she was Istrid's daughter amuses me to no end. What did she think would happen? Hi, my name is Juniper. My mommy is a general, so you need to be nice to me even though you beat me in the game. Was that the <laughs> conversation she expected? It's a very good Juniper impression. Thank you. I've been working on my Juniper voice. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it would have been odd if Kat had known that, frankly. I could see other students talking about it. Like, you know, that's Gretchen Wieners. Her dad invented Hot Pockets. Great. That's Juniper. Her mom invented Wholesale Slaughter of Callowins. Amazing. But they didn't. And Catherine says, why didn't Juniper say anything? How odd. Also, I'm talking to the Black Knight now, who's my parental figure already. I didn't ever bring that up to anyone. It's a secret. Yeah, it. it I understand being surprised, sure. But her, oh, yeah. her first reaction to it, the first thing she says after it, is definitely surprise brain talking, not logical brain. If you were to tell me that a silly game show host were the son of former Treasury Secretary, I would say, wow, I didn't know that about Sam Reich. But I'm not shocked that it doesn't come up. Grow up. Black and Cat then catch up a little bit. She asks how the things are going in the south with the matrons, and turns out they're going really well. The goblins sent a, an envoy to Black to apologize for not catching on that things were advancing like they were. They, you know, they're aware of the red letter, of course, and were they admitted, you know, we made an oopsie. We should have caught this sooner. Good for them. Good for them for being aware. Good for them for taking care of it on their own so that Black didn't have to come and cause problems. They handled that well, it sounds like, and it doesn't surprise me. They are the matrons, but it's it's nice that this isn't a big distracting thing for Black for a long time. It's This got introduced as a way to introduce red letters and uh, to give us a little more detail on the matrons, and now we're done with this particular plot point. Neat, tidy, all wrapped up. I dig it. I enjoy that this was able to be wrapped up like this, too, in that we know that the goblins and praise have a, frankly, less than fuzzy relationship with one another, even if they are imperially bound. And this is a nifty example of how their always potentially hostile relationship can itself, in some ways, through that hostility, manifest in neatness because you say good for them that they solved it without black having to come and it is because they didn't have to have their affairs messed with but it's also good for the empire because they didn't have to go in and mess with the goblin affairs everybody won because swift decisive action was taken and nobody has to do anything about it which would be painful for both sides it's an efficiency of antagonism of this particular antagonism i don't advocate antagonism generally and this frees up black time it does and he decides to use that to continue his his lessons with cat which cat accepts pretty quickly it's what she wanted she's sure that the teachers at the college were competent but doubts that they had anything to offer compared to the black knight yeah uh, that's a you're correct the black knight is a pretty singular and on top of that you also have Cat learns better than 
almost anybody alive because she has an aspect devoted to it, I have a feeling a classroom setting would be a pretty big waste of time for Catherine Foundling at this point in her life. Or at any point in her life going forward. She would learn all the material. Oh, for sure. She'd be on, like, rat face level, just not as hot. Good grades, a captain, but not hot. That is a rough place to be. But sadly, she can't spend time in the classroom anyway. At least, she wouldn't be able to spend a typical amount of time in the classroom. Because, well, like a lot of students at college, she's about to get into partying. (laughs) Yes, the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the chapter does end with Kat being told that she's being presented at court. Probably not the right phrase, since that has an actual historical connotation, but she is going to appear at court for purposes of meeting people and being introduced and all of these things. And court here, of course, being the court of Brace, meeting the Dread Empress and Pracy Nobles, and she's understandably not particularly excited about that. And that is where this chapter ends, which means it's also where this episode ends. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... The Doors. Talking Heads. And Grateful Dead. Well, the Ungrateful Dead, am I right? Weighed in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Extremely generous laughter was crowdlaughing.wave by Isohoo. Music for the epigraph was Some Kind of Trap by Michael Avon. Jump Sound was Cartoon Jump by Bastion Hallow. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to... Ma- materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 20, Rise.